As a kid, uh, one of my favorite books was a book that my mom loved and read to me and my sisters a lot. Uh, and it's interesting, it's actually turned out to be a pretty insightful commentary for our culture today. It's the book called, Are You My Mother? You guys read the book? Oh man, fantastic book. The story of the book is very simple. A baby bird hatches from his egg and his mother is not in the nest. So he begins a journey of trying to find her. He asks a kitten, a chicken, a dog, and a cow, are you my mother? Then a car, a boat, a plane, and a steam shovel, are you my mother? Then he realizes very sadly that none of those things are his mother. Exactly. But finally, he makes it back home to his nest, and his mother returns, and he immediately realizes, that's my mother. It's such a classic story, and I, I think kids' books actually contain the best lessons in life for us to learn. Because Are You My Mother is a story of identity. The newborn bird is trying to figure out who he is by searching for his mother. And it's actually kind of sad because nothing can give him the identity and connection he is seeking until he makes it back home to where he was created. I told you guys that this book, it was written in 1960, but man, that is a profound message for our world today. Because I believe one of the big questions people are asking and wrestling with in our time, though they may not voice it out loud quite like this, is this question. Who am I? Who am I? Where do I find the meaning of my life? Where do I get my value, my worth, my identity? Do I get it from someone else? Does someone out there tell me who I am? Or can science and history tell me who I am? Or do I need to try and discover it inside of myself and then tell others who I am? Again, I know people aren't just like walking around asking these questions in the course of their daily life, but just look at the way people live and operate and you'll see this question, this search for identity drives a lot of what people do. And closely tied to the question, who am I, is a second question. Why am I here? That's a question of purpose. Was I born because my parents decided to bring me into the world? Was I born by accident? Did the right atoms and molecules just happen to be in the right place to form my body and my brain? And do I have a particular task that I've been created to accomplish? Is it happiness or success or bettering the world around me or loving others or being a good person? Or do I get to pick for myself what my purpose is? Am I some sort of autonomous ship that can set my sails wherever direction I want? Or is there a force like the wind directing me where I'm destined to go? Again, maybe you've never expressed it quite that way, but deep down, I think we've all had these sorts of thoughts. Maybe when they bubble up, we, we work really hard to shove them back down. These kind of questions might make us uncomfortable, anxious, depressed, or confused. But if you've never really stopped to think about those questions before this morning, I want to invite you to consider them with me in the next half hour we have together. I want you to think about your own life. You. And I want you to wrestle with your identity and your purpose. Even if you're a Christian and you think you know the answers, I want you to consider how you might answer these questions specifically. Who am I? 
and why am I here? I believe the best way to answer those questions today is not through meditation or therapy or education or even your mother. Those those can be good things. I believe the real answers to those big questions come from God through his word, which is the Bible. So let me show you why the Bible is the key to answering these questions. By looking at a story where Jesus revealed to someone their identity and their purpose. Uh, This story comes from the Gospel of Luke, the book we've been walking through verse by verse this year. Uh, This book is a product of Luke's research into the true account of the life of Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, God inspired Luke to write this down for us today, making these words true, true words from God. We've now come to the fifth chapter and in the early days of Jesus' ministry. So let's read our passage first, and then we'll break it all down. Look with me at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both the boats so that they, they, they filled, they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is doing ministry in the region he grew up in called Galilee. He got his start by being baptized by John and then preaching in local synagogues. He also began to demonstrate his authority by healing people and casting out demons. So by this time, Jesus had become very popular. Crowds followed him wherever he went. They wanted to hear him teach. And we see that right here as Jesus teaches by the lake. And the crowds are pressing in on him. So Jesus, needing a little bit of breathing room, he gets into one of the boats and starts to teach. Now, we see that this was not just a random boat, but it was Simon's boat. We were introduced to Simon in the last chapter, who we also know was called Peter. Jesus, you may remember, went to Simon's house and healed his mother-in-law from a high fever one day after the synagogue. So there was already some sort of a relationship here between Jesus and Peter, and he's now using his boat as a pulpit to teach the people. But the miracle comes after he's done teaching the crowd. That's when he turns to Simon Peter and he says something very strange. Look again with me at verse 4. It says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, why was that a strange thing to say? It's because in this time, fishermen most often worked at night. 
That was the best time to catch fish. So they would spend all night out on the lake. Then they would come in in the morning, clean their nets, rest, and get ready for the next night. It was unusual to try and fish during the day. It was especially unusual if you just spent the whole previous night catching nothing. That's why Peter responds the way he does. Look at verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we, we told all night. We took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You can imagine here, Peter was tired, probably quite frustrated that he worked all night, caught nothing, which meant no money for his family. And here's this guy who he has great respect for, but who is not a fisherman, telling him how to fish. We know Peter had respect for Jesus because of the, the word he used to call him. He's called him master. That's a word similar to the word teacher or rabbi. It's a recognition of Christ's authority. And it's why Peter wants to obey Jesus' word. He says, at your word, I will let down the nets. And you can kind of sense Peter's understandable tension here. Here's this guy who healed his mother-in-law, saved her life. He clearly has some supernatural power. He's clearly close to God. He's a master teacher. There's this respect for his position. But Peter's probably thinking, fishing is my domain. <laughs> All right, this is what I do for a living. We don't fish in the daytime, and I'm ready for bed. We ain't going to catch nothing. But for you, Jesus, at your word, okay, I, I will do it. <laughs> so they do it. We see the plural word there, they Fishing was a partner business, a family business. We know Peter fished with his brother, Andrew, so he's there helping him. Maybe he's looking a little side-eyed at Peter, thinking, seriously, what are we doing, man? Are you sure this guy knows what he's talking about? What are we doing? But they let down their nets, and it seems that immediately they catch this huge haul of fish. It's so big, their nets are breaking, when the night before they couldn't catch a thing. So they call over to their partners. There's another pair of brothers, James and John, and they come over with their boat to help. And the catch is so big that all the fish and both boats are causing the boats to sink. P picture the scene with me right here. These are experienced fishermen who do this for a living. They just had the most frustrating night in fishing history, catching nothing. They're tired. They're worn out, they're discouraged, and now in broad daylight, they're happily panicking because their boats are filled with fish, a.k.a. money, but they're about to lose it all because they caught so much fish that their boats are sinking. How would you respond to that? Maybe you would start paddling as fast as you could back to shore. Maybe you'd call over another boat to help take some of the load. Maybe you would ask Jesus, the guy who just caused this problem, to do a little more magic with the boats and fix the situation. But here's how Peter responds, and this is the key to the whole passage right here. Look with me, verse 8. Simon Peter, when he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Man, where'd that come from? Why did he say that? Why did Peter, right after the biggest catch of his life before he even had a chance to secure the fish, a.k.a. his livelihood, the boat sinking, which is what he used every day for his livelihood, why did Peter stop right then and do this? Here's why. Because Peter saw Jesus. Peter got a glimpse, an early glimpse, a partial glimpse 
A glimpse that he wouldn't fully understand at this point, but a glimpse nonetheless of who Jesus is. And that brings us to our first point this morning. As we think about identity and purpose, here's what we learn about these big questions from Peter's response to Jesus. Number one, number one, life's purpose is found in seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus. When Peter sees Jesus, when he really sees who he is, his response is to fall down and to basically say, get away from me. And that response makes a lot more sense when we go back to a story from the Old Testament. Uh, Peter's response here is strikingly similar to another man who once got a glimpse of God. That man was Isaiah. If you want to flip with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, you can see it for yourself. If not, it'll be on the screen for us. But Isaiah, you may know, is one of the big prophets of the Old Testament. He had a very important calling to share God's message with God's people. And so to start his ministry, God gave him a vision. He wanted him to see who he was speaking for. So look at Isaiah chapter 6. Notice how Isaiah paints this picture for us. And I want you to compare it in your minds to what we saw with Peter. Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah's talking, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isn't that beautiful? Isaiah, he sees God. And when he sees God, he's struck by his holiness. Holy is the word most frequently used to describe God in the Bible. Holy means other, separate, not just greater and higher, but altogether different from everything else. And when you experience and you see the holiness of God, how other he is, your first response is how unholy you are. (laughs) You see the gap of where God is and where you are, and it's stunning and beautiful and terrifying all at the same time. Isaiah, he cries out, he says, woe is me. In other words, I'm toast. Like I'm done, I'm ruined, I'm unworthy. Isaiah recognizes that he's a sinner. God's holiness is like a spotlight upon the darkness of his heart, and he's terrified. He wants to hide or run away or just die. And in one sense, this is a normal response to seeing God. When we get a glimpse of God in his word, we should from time to time become broken and overwhelmed by our sin and our unworthiness of God's presence. We should be startled and we should be terrified by his greatness. Why the Bible commands us to fear God. Part of the fear is realizing that his holiness and his justice should take you out. 
It's the reason C.S. Lewis chose to portray God in the Chronicles of Narnia as a lion. You guys have been to the Kansas City Zoo and and seen the the lion exhibit? You can get pretty close to a lion, like at least as close as I ever want to be. (laughs) And even though there's a barrier there and there's this really strong net between you and the lions, it's still scary, like especially when my kids run up to it and the lion's like, oh, there's a snack. (laughs) Like, my first reaction when I see the lions is to kind of take a step back. You want to see them, and you're fascinated by them. They're they're beautiful creatures, but you also want to run away at the same time. That's the idea here with Isaiah and Peter. Peter falls to his knees. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This is how we know Peter gets a glimpse of Jesus' deity. He doesn't understand it all yet, but he sees it. He sees the holiness, the otherness, the greatness, and he immediately recognizes that he is not worthy of Jesus. He says, I'm a sinner. I can't hide it. I can't pretend anymore. I am not worthy, Jesus, to have you in my boat or in my life. If you don't get out of here, something bad's going to happen. Either I'm going to mess you up or you're going to have to take me out in your justice. You have to because I'm like oil and you're like water. We cannot coexist like this. And everything we know about God, Everything we know about his holiness and how he feels about sin says that should be true. Sinful man and holy God cannot coexist. That's why Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. That's why Israel had to build the tabernacle and the temple and put a really thick curtain in the middle of it where no one could go inside and see God's glory. Isaiah understood, Peter understood, between your holiness, God, and my sin, this ain't going to work. And yet something totally unexpected happens. Grace. God gave Isaiah grace. He took a coal, he put it to his lips, and he atoned for his sin. He forgave him. And I believe Jesus did the same for Peter. There's no coal or fire or anything like that here. But I think we see it in this one simple action by Jesus. He stays in the boat. He doesn't depart. He doesn't strike Peter down like he deserves. Jesus stays. And he tells him not to be afraid. He calls him to follow him. That's grace. Grace is God loving and forgiving sinners who do not deserve it. And my friend, you will not understand your identity until you too see God's holiness and grace. You were not made to find your identity inside yourself or by yourself, but rather to receive it from God. See, God made you. He rules over you. He's given you everything you have. He holds your breath in his hands, and he can rightfully take it anytime he wants. So that means God determines your identity. So if you want to know who you are, you start by looking to him. And yes, it will be scary at first because you're going to get exposed Seeing God will expose your sin and your guilt, who you really are. But he does that so you'll see your need for him. So don't look away because you'll also see God's grace. That he loves you, that he loves you so much he sent Jesus for you. He gave up his own son to die on the cross so that you could live. And guys, once you see this and understand it and believe it, that's when all the fuzziness of life begins to make sense. And you see that you're not an accident. You're not just a product of your parents' DNA. You're a child of God. 
You were chosen by him before the foundations of the earth. He sought you out to lavish his love on you, to adopt you and give you a new name and a new life. And he doesn't make mistakes. So don't listen to the world. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Like, I don't care what someone said about you in your life. I don't care what your parents said, somebody else means said, or what you've always thought or believed or reinforced in your mind or what feels right to you. Who you are comes from God, period. Like, he gives you your identity. He determines what is true about you, and no one else can change that. Your life purpose is found in seeing Jesus. But we don't stop there. Once we see Jesus, he calls us to a task. He gives us something to do, and that's our second takeaway this morning. Number two, number two, life's purpose is found in serving Jesus, seeing Jesus, serving Jesus. Look again at verses 9 and 10. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on, you will be catching men. So even though we have reason to fear God because of our sin and his holiness, and even though there's a healthy kind of fear toward God, we don't have to run away. We don't have to hide from him. No, God actually wants us to come close because then he can send us out with this newfound purpose as we see here. And Jesus takes Simon's vocation as a fisherman, and he uses the same language to describe what he'll be doing now. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. From now on, now that you've seen Jesus, now that you know your identity, now that you've been changed by God, from now on, you're going to catch men. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying in the same way that you've worked so hard to catch fish with a net and bring them out of the water, you're now going to cast the net of the gospel to bring people into the kingdom. That's what fishing for people is. It's simply sharing the good news about Jesus and inviting people to repent and believe in him and join his kingdom. And guys, our purpose today is the same. My purpose, your purpose, is to fish for people, to tell others about what we've, been, what we've found in Jesus and to disciple them into mature believers. Like, that's not just a call for pastors or missionaries or deacons or teachers or super mature, really knowledgeable, smart, really good Christians. Or this is the standard, normal call for every single follower of Jesus. And his first disciples would have clearly understood that was what they were agreeing to do by following him. To follow Jesus is to serve others, is to serve Jesus by reaching others. And when we don't do this, when we don't share our faith or make disciples, it's not just that it's disobedience. Like we think, oh, God's mad at me because I don't share my faith enough and I'm going to have less jewels in my crown. I'm a lesser Christian. And then we end up feeling guilty. And so maybe we try to invite a coworker or neighbor to church one time. We say, okay, I did my part. I got rid of the guilt until the next sermon on evangelism comes along and we start all over. <laughs> Like, I don't think that's the way God wants us to think about his calling. No, when you understand reaching people to be your purpose, then to not do it is to miss out on what God has for you. It's to settle for less than what your life could be. Think about it like this. When it's the fourth quarter of a football game, 
or basketball game, the best player wants to have the ball. Michael Jordan, Patrick Mahomes. Those guys don't have to be guilted or begged into going out and winning the game for their team. Andy Reid, a few weeks ago in the overtime of the Super Bowl, he didn't have to walk over on the sideline and, and really try to get Mahomes to go back out there and win the game. Like, he didn't have to try and convince him, hey, I really need you to score here, bud. Like, no, he recognized this is what I do. This is my job. I get paid way too much for it. <laughs> but he's trained for that moment. He, he's prepared. He, he sought it out. And when it came, he was excited. He's anxious. He wants the opportunity to go win the game for his team. That's how we should think of evangelism and discipleship. We need to first understand this is our calling as Christians. Yes, I know it's scary to talk to people about your faith, but this is what we signed up for, for what we're created for. Whether you're outgoing or shy, we got the jersey on. It's the fourth quarter, and God has put the ball in our hands to share his message. That's why we need to train and prepare. So often we assume that people who are good at sharing their faith, they're just naturally so outgoing and gifted. and People just walk up to them begging them, please tell me about Jesus, please. <laughs> it's not what I've found to be true. The people I know who are the most evangelistic are the people who pray about it, who think about it, who prepare, who practice, who train themselves like an athlete. They're ready, and when the opportunity comes, they're still a little nervous, but they're thrilled they're overjoyed at the opportunity to make a difference in someone's life. And we see this with the disciples. This purpose of fishing for people is not something they just jump in and start doing overnight. No, it takes time for them to grow and learn, and they make mistakes along the way. But they never lose sight of their purpose. So let me ask you this morning, what would it look like for you to see fishing for people as your purpose. Like what if you saw your career not as your ultimate purpose, but rather using your career for the ultimate purpose of reaching others? Or what if you saw your family not as your ultimate purpose, but rather using the good gift God's given you in a family to the purpose of reaching others? Or what about the home you have, the street you live on, the school your kids attend, the team they play on, the gym you go to, the hobby you have? How might you use those things, not for your own purposes, but for the ultimate purpose of reaching others? Those are the kinds of questions we need to consider. And it doesn't start by having it all figured out. That Peter and Andrew and James and John know exactly what Jesus was calling them to do. They didn't know the specifics. They didn't realize all the hard things that were about to come their way. They didn't realize all four of them would die for Jesus. I'm sure they didn't realize they were going to be the faces of this new global movement called the church. <laughs> they were just fishermen. All they knew was that they had a new identity and a new purpose, and they weren't turning back. They had seen Jesus. They had been called to serve Jesus. So they decided that day to take the very first step. Here it is, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Notice they didn't say, hey, wait a second. Let's kind of think this through for a minute. We just got the biggest catch of our lives. We're going to be rich. Maybe we can get Jesus to come fishing with us a lot more. <laughs> or maybe we can just go see him on the weekends, you know, a couple hours on Sunday morning. Let's find a healthy balance here. 
No, it says they left their boats and followed him. Those boats weren't cheap. That was their career. That was their livelihood. They had spent countless hours working right there. And yet, they left the boats. They didn't have all the answers, but they left the boats. They didn't yet see the whole picture, but they left the boats. I'm sure they wondered how God could use a bunch of fishermen like them, but they left the boats. Listen to me. If you want to find your purpose in life, you too must leave the boats. You must give up everything else, every other desire, goal, plan. All of it comes under Jesus. doesn't mean we need to all leave our jobs, though some of us might. Some of us might be called to change careers so we have more flexibility for the kingdom, or maybe we don't have to travel as much. Some of us might be called to pursue full-time vocational ministry or full-time on the mission field, even in our retirement. Some of us might be called to move to a new place, to be a part of a brand new church. But for others of us, this simply means looking at our careers and our families and our neighborhoods and our community and everything else through the lens of our new purpose. It's a change of motive. It's a change of our why. Our why. And this purpose of fishing for people will look different for each of us, but the call is the same for every single Christian. Leave the boats. Give up everything and follow Jesus. He is your identity. He is your purpose. And once you get him, everything else will make sense. No, life won't be perfect. It never will till heaven. But there's nothing like knowing your purpose. So will you answer the call? Will you embrace your true identity and your true purpose today? Will you leave the boats? Let's bow our heads in prayer.